Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Uh, we are doing this the morning after the New York City mayoral primary, where it turns out that maybe defund the police is not the most popular idea, even in the progressive bastion of New York City. And the United States Senate, to absolutely no one's surprise, uh, kills the uh, the uh, the election reform bill known as HR1. It feels like kind of a kabuki dance because everyone knew how that was going to turn out. The big question, of course, is whether there's any road to a compromise whatsoever. And we continue to live in a world in which one out of three Republicans apparently still believes that Donald Trump will be reinstated as president. So our daily palate cleanser, my pillow guy, Mike Lindell. Yeah, I'm going to have a venue at the end of July. It's your job, everybody, to get the word out to the world. We're going to, every cyber guy that has credentials, they're called CISSP credentials. They're going to be there. Let's say I got 200 of them from around the country. I can be Democrats. It doesn't matter. The, you know, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, this machine thing should, uh, should, you know, it was attacked by China. But anyway, we're bringing in all the cyber guys. They're going to be there. Then we're bringing all the media. Maybe even Fox will show up. What a concept. And then we're going to bring in all senators, governors, even the corrupt ones, Brian Kemp, um, and uh, legislatures, secretary of state, state, and every single government official that wants to be there. Because when we show them these these packet captures, we're going to just give them out to all them cyber guys. So they can have their own guy go, how many votes were flipped here in Tampa? Here you go. Boom, you know. So there you have it. It's going to be a worldwide event. Millions are going to see it. And those Supreme Court justices are going to look at it then. And they're going to go 9-0 that this country was attacked. The election's going to come down. Donald Trump will be in office by this fall. For sure. For sure. For sure. For sure. So it it seemed like a good day. To talk with our guest today, Jonathan Rausch, whose new book is The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth. Jonathan, first of all, good morning. Good morning, Charlie. I just want to say I found that very persuasive. (laughs) Well, you know, one of the questions I was going to ask is, you know, does truth actually need a defense? But obviously, in context, it does need a defense. And you and I were just discussing the difference between hope and optimism about all of this. You know, you you listen to that and you go, how can any sentient human being take that seriously? And yet this is a guy who's been in the White House. The former president of the United States appeared at his rally. A third of Republican voters apparently believe some version of that. So good timing for a book about truth, isn't it? (laughs) I'll tell you, frankly, Charlie, it's it's always good timing for a book about truth. One of the things I say in this book is, is that right now is not the first time we've seen these major, what I call epistemic disruptions, where new technologies and new actors basically disrupt how we think about reality. And it's a constant struggle to, to keep ourselves and our country moored to reality. It's really hard to do. It is hard to do, and the reality-based community feels like it's shrinking all the time. So before we get into this, how do you describe yourself politically? Well, I've never been partisan, and for a long time I've been center-right. When in college I was pretty much a Naderite liberal, and then I became a reporter and came to Washington Mm -hmm. and saw how things worked, and I saw Reagan. And I kind of thought, you know, if Reagan is a conservative, I guess 
I think maybe I'm one of those. And then along came Newt Gingrich and Tom DeLay and Sarah Palin and Pat Buchanan. And I said, nope, nope, wait a minute. If that's what a conservative is, I am not one of those. So, this sounds so I don't know what familiar. I am. Except, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I think I'm where you are. I'm kind of center right and homeless right now. Well, you, you're also in that liberal tradition, the liberal democratic tradition, small L, small D uh, tradition, pushing back against illiberalism on both the right and the left. And that's where, you know, kindly inquisitors came in. Uh, this was at a time when people were, were recognizing the attacks on academic freedom that were coming from the academic left. Uh, and, 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 and that continues. I mean, I, I know that there's a school of thought that says that we should never talk about both sides, but it does feel at the moment that, that you do have this aggressive push against free speech, free thought, truth, you know, coming from the ideological extremes. And that's not new. No, it's not new. It's turbocharged right now by, uh, by two or three factors, on the left, you've got the rise of cancel culture, which is turbocharged by social media, which makes it possible to, you know, gang up on Charlie Sykes and demand his firing and ostracize him and, and call him a racist and have 400 people sign a petition overnight. And that's new, as well as putting pressure on employers. So people now get fired because, you know, Charlie becomes controversial and no one, no one wants to hire him because, you know, you can hire someone who's not controversial. So that's new. On the right, the biggest change, frankly, is, you know, this will sound partisan, Charlie. Um, I'm not partisan. I've, I've voted for many Republicans. Um, this is just, I think, a fact. Uh, Donald Trump and his MAGA movement and now the Republican Party are the big change because they have done something never before attempted or even imagined in an American context. They have seized upon and adapted Russian-style disinformation mm -hmm. uh, and information warfare and applied it to American politics. They are targeting the American public with Russian-style disinformation. That is new, and it works. On a mass scale. And, On a mass scale. And, and, and I think that's what people didn't see coming, that we would have that kind of mass scale Russian-style disinformation, things like the fire hose of falsehood. What is the fire hose of, of falsehood? How does it work? Well, first, let me just say, what do we mean by disinformation or really information warfare? You guys have a high-end audience, so what I really prefer to call it is epistemic warfare. So what is that? That is organizing and manipulating the social and media environments for political gain, and meaning specifically to dominate and divide and disorient and ultimately demoralize the target population. And there are lots of ways to do that. Um, Vladimir Putin is a master at this. The Nazis were masters of this. These are not new tactics, but one of them is, yeah, it's been called by Rand Corporation researchers, the fire hose of falsehood. And that's a tactic where the goal is to demoralize people by just confusing them. You just, as Stephen Bannon famously put it, you flood the zone with shit. Censorship is difficult and expensive. It doesn't work very well. But what if you can just pour out so many falsehoods, conspiracy theories, exaggerations, and half-truths through so many channels simultaneously without paying any attention to whether they're true or false or consistent or inconsistent. You just flood the zone so that the fact-checkers can't keep up with them. The media are beside themselves. Every time they refute one, they get hit with 10 more, and the public becomes cynical. 
It doesn't know who to trust. It's, wait a minute, I don't understand who, wait, who hacked the server? Was it, was it Hillary Clinton? Was it the Ukrainians? Was it the Russians? I don't know. So with that, with that technique, it's nice if you can persuade people of things that are false, like Donald Trump won the 2020 election. What you're really out to do is just confuse everybody. So for every person who thinks Trump won in 2020, there's one or two more, including independents, who say, well, I don't know who won. We'll never know who won. It's all disputed. Well, this is what Hannah Arendt talked about, right? That at a certain point, you have the annihilation of truth, that uh, the people will believe that anything is possible and nothing is true. And that seems to be where we are, where we're at right now, doesn't it? Well, yeah. Yeah. we're in a dangerous situation. And the reason for that is it's not just Trump. Um, Unfortunately, as he's gone out of office, he's lost his Twitter platform and his Facebook platform. That has not stopped the Republican Party from continuing, picking up and continuing his fabulism about the 2020 election. I would point to my home state, Arizona, where there's a so-called vote audit going on it's really propaganda theater. It's really designed to spread a conspiracy theory and many conspiracy theories like, you know, the, the ballots were imported from China. So you've, you've got these people out there who are claiming to look for bamboo fibers on election ballots. And now they're uh, importing people from other states who are part of the movement and other states are going to copy this. So this is really about creating viral disinformation. And it's not just Trump anymore. And the problem, Charlie, Americans are epidemiologically naive, meaning it's not that we don't get it or can't get it. It's we've never confronted tactics like this waged against Americans, by Americans. It never occurred to us this could even happen. I mean, maybe Russia would do it, but an entire political party? So we don't know how to counter this. We don't even really know how to talk about it. We need to understand that that this country is under major information warfare attack from one of its two political parties, which is now institutionally a propaganda organ. Well, let me ask an awkward and existential question, which is that I guess I had and many people had assumed that people really did care about whether something was true or not true, that our minds were wired uh, to determine what was accurate and what was not accurate. But but maybe we're wrong. You know, do people really care about the truth? One thing that struck me about your book was you contrasted 400,000 years of human history um, with the basically just the the last 300 years of the constitution of knowledge, that this whole idea of having a uh, institutions and norms that determine what is true uh, and 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 taking that seriously is a relatively recent phenomenon. I mean, oh, brand we, we, new. Brand new. I mean, so so talk about the contrast between the previous 400,000 years and this sliver of time in which we actually took truth seriously. Well, philosophers have understand since at least the time of Plato and Aristotle that humans are very easily deceived, especially by ourselves. And now modern psychology, cognitive psychology, social psychology have confirmed that in all kinds of ways. We are good as a species at finding 
truth, staying in touch with reality in situations where we get pretty rapid feedback and it really benefits us to get the facts right. Like, is that a breeze in the bush or is it a tiger? Where is the next tribe in camp? We're, we're really, we're, we're good at that. But on the bigger abstract questions like, um, where does disease come from? Who should we worship? We're really bad at that, actually, because we're wired so that we want to believe what those around us believe, what'll keep us in good standing with our tribe and increase mm -hmm. our status because that increases our ability to survive. And we also want to believe what confirms our biases. In fact, it's, it's not that we even do this consciously. You put people in machines, fMRI machines, and they actually perceive things more that they agree with. And other studies find people would rather go to the dentist and have root canal than be exposed to political opinions Mm -hmm. They disagree with. So if you leave us to our own devices, you do what we did for the first, you know, 200,000 or whatever years of human history, which is we form into sects with like-minded people and we believe with our, our tribes rather than our brains. And then the sects split up and they go to war with each other because they all have separate accounts of reality. And then a lot of people get killed. And the sects basically decide what's real by having a leader who tells them, you know, a priest, a prince, a politburo. Um, these sectors really actually bad at making knowledge. So that was pretty much most of human history. Lots of bloodshed and lots of ignorance um, because of, you know, we're basically designed to survive in small groups in a very familiar environment. So what do we do about that? A radical idea comes along. About the same idea, the modern idea of democracy comes along and influenced by a lot of the same people, John Locke especially. And they say, wait a minute, um, let's get it. Let's suppose we do away with the idea that anyone's in charge of truth, like any particular authority, whether it's a priest or a Bible or an oracle or you name it. Let's, let's not do it that way. Let's go to a system of rules and let's create this 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 community, this network of people and institutions that follow rules to decide what's true so it doesn't even matter in principle who you are, so that anyone should get the same result performing the same experiment. And the same people say, well, let's do that with politics too. Let's say instead of having someone in charge, you have a system where people have to follow a bunch of rules and go through a bunch of institutions and have checks and balances to make laws. So no one's ever in particular in charge. And the thing just keeps going and it becomes a dynamic engine. Mm -hmm. Well, one strand of that gives you the U.S. Constitution. And another strand of that gives you the Constitution of Knowledge, which is very similar because it's a big decentralized social system that we trust to, um, to check on facts and to figure out what's true. No one's in charge of it. It's open-ended. So no truth is ever completely final automatically. And people are interchangeable. So that any experiment or argument that Charlie Sykes does, you know, Jonathan Rausch or someone halfway around the world who speaks a different language, has a different religion and culture, should be able to see that argument, criticize it, get the same result in the experiment. This turns out to be a species transforming technology. I would argue it is the species transforming technology because it changes us from a group of tribesmen and herbsmen who Basically, the growth of knowledge for the first 200,000 years is more or less zero from year to year. Mm -hmm. To today, we can analyze a new virus in a weekend, 
design a new vaccine in 10 days, pivot millions of minds, billions of dollars, thousands of institutions around the world to focus on that or any other problem. Um, it's an incredible social system, and it gives us knowledge, objective knowledge, which, which allows us as a species to function orders of magnitude above our design capacity. That's the constitution of knowledge. So your book makes the this nexus between democracy and this knowledge culture very, very clear. And then the analogy is between the constitution of knowledge and, and the U.S. Constitution. They're really intertwined. You can't and, – and, and I think that this, this is what's interesting is they – is to understand that, that a respect for truth – is is not just one element of a democracy that it's it's really kind of like the oxygen of democracy that they that they they come from the same intellectual font and maybe can't survive without one another well that's that's exactly right i'm not the first to say it people from james comey former fbi director to former cia director michael hayden and hillary clinton and ben sass and barack mm -hmm. obama and many others have pointed out that it's very hard, if not impossible, for a democracy to function if the population is splitting off, branching off into separate realities that cannot communicate with each other. In one reality, Joe Biden won, and it was the safest election ever. In the other reality, Donald Trump won, and it was the most corrupt election ever. That's very hard for democracy to cope with. And by the way, that is the outcome that the propagandists are seeking. Remember, divide, dominate, disorient, and demoralize. They want this to happen. It's happening on purpose. So, so you have, you uh, described the four um, pillars, the four institutional bases of this reality-based universe here. What, what, what are the four? The big four are, of course, academic, uh, scholarly, and scientific research. It's I think the longest poll in the tent. And that's, you know, the people who made the vaccine that's protecting me right now. Another is journalism, fact-based journalism, which is a global network linked through services like the Associated Press of people whose job is to find facts and to check facts and to check each other. A third is government. That's statistical agencies like the Weather Bureau, like the CBO, the General uh, Government Accountability Office, the CIA, uh, which is a huge fact finder, employs thousands of people to try to figure out what's true. And the fourth is law. The original idea of a fact predates modern science, and it actually dates to law, because in order to settle these disputes, legal disputes that were coming up, people had to figure out how to, what the account of the facts was. So they invented this idea, well, let's have adversarial argument about facts and let's make people cite cases and, and cite evidence and let's make it, let's, let's punish it if they lie. That's, that's a huge one. You, you know, you don't want people lying and that's still how law is. And if you don't think law is a fact finding pillar of the reality based community, ask Donald Trump and look what happened when he went to court with 60 frivolous lawsuits claiming the election was stolen. You know, he hit a brick mm -hmm. wall because courts demand facts. Uh, yes, and and that obviously uh, that that wall didn't crack there. But as you point out, though, this system is not self-sustaining, right? I mean, it's just like the U.S. Constitution; it's not self-sustaining. It requires effort. 
to keep it in in good health. I mean, the Constitution is based on an honor system. The Constitution of Knowledge also uh, needs needs to be refreshed. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, the founders warned us about this again and again with the U.S. Constitution. Madison, Franklin, famously Franklin, when he was asked what kind of system he'd given us or the founders had given us in the Constitutional Convention, his reply was, a republic if you can keep it. Um, Washington, Adams, they all said versions of the same thing, which is, look, this system is just words on paper, and it doesn't amount to a hill of beans if people don't build on it, really internalize its norms. Like, for example, you have to be willing to lose elections. You can't try to take over the country if you lose an election. Um, you have to care about truth. You have to be an informed voter. You have to value freedom. Um, won't work without that. Same is true in the Republic of Science, in the Constitution of Knowledge. You, you absolutely depend on values like, you know, um, don't lie. Don't make up facts. That is, that is just wrong. And if you lose an argument and this, you, you put your hypothesis out there and it comes back with lots of experiments and fact checks saying, sorry, that doesn't add up, well, you move on. I mean, you can still believe you're right, but you can't expect the system to believe you're right because it found you're wrong. Okay, so let's talk about this analogy between the Constitution of Knowledge and the U.S. Constitution. I want to read a paragraph um, where you where you make this very very explicit. And I think you've already done this, but but here's here's the way you formulate it. Although not written down or legally enforced, the Constitution of Knowledge governs how we understand and discover truth and resembles the U.S. Constitution in many ways. Both constitutions set up norms and institutions which define liberal communities. Both foster unequal freedom, well-being, and social peace. Both use checks and balances to channel ambition and force compromise. Both impose burdensome responsibilities as well as protecting rights. Both limit the sway of demagogues, extremists, and opportunists, and both, as a result, are constant targets of evasion and attack, which is good. But I guess the big distinction between the Constitution of Knowledge and the Constitution of the United States is the Constitution of the United States, at some point, as you point out, has a Supreme Court or has judges who are fact-based and who will you know, set up that wall and draw those lines. There's nothing really similar in the Constitution of Knowledge, right? There, there's, there's no one body that lays down the law or that can enforce it. And a result, as a result, we can have these multiple truths out there. Well, just a, a, a footnote point really is that, as you know, the Supreme Court is not final if we amend the Constitution or if it's makeup changes. So there's actually a lot of politics that goes on there as well. But I take your bigger point, and, and yeah, what you just described, Charlie, the open-endedness of the constitutional knowledge, that's a feature, not a bug. Mm -hmm. Because on, on any given day, it's just the human condition to disagree about facts and reality. Um, and you actually want that because the constitution of knowledge only works when you have viewpoint diversity and disagreement, because we never see our own biases. That's where checks and balances come in. We rely on people with different biases to call us out. And the key to the Constitution of Knowledge, like the U.S. Constitution, is it forces us to negotiate um, and talk to people we disagree with. We have to take them on board or we don't get anywhere. So you want that diversity of opinion. That's very important. You want to harness it, though. You want to channel it by forcing people who have one point of view to contrast it with people with another point of view, 
both make their case and then figure out what's knowledge coming out of that. And that's what, that's what requires a lot of structure. But, but what you don't need, actually, you don't need a Supreme Court in that world. You don't want one. The system is actually capable of containing these arguments, using them as fuel, like a kind of nuclear reactor that goes on and on, and building those into knowledge without a Supreme Court. And that's when you think about it, mm-hmm. a fantastic thing. But you're right. It's not automatically self-sustaining. There's stuff we have to do. Well, and also the U.S. Constitution is not automatically self-sustaining either. Correct. But it does require, they both require a certain norm. For example, you know, in, in the political constitutional realm, the, the, the system that we have, the institutions that we have, require people to understand that sometimes they will lose elections and that they need to recognize that and the government is legitimate even though they have lost. And in the Constitution of Knowledge, the the norm should be that every once in a while you will lose an argument. You will it will turn out that you are wrong uh, about the facts or the conclusions that you've made, and that you will acknowledge that because you acknowledge some arbiter of truth. That turns out to be trickier. Yeah. Actually, they both they both turn out to be tricky, don't they? Well, they both they both go against human nature, but they both make the same move, which is so interesting and such a game changer in human affairs. So. In most of history, in both politics and the realm of knowledge, of truth, um, you have a dispute and one side wins and kills the other. You know, you make a bid for power, you're the losing side, you lose your head and your head goes on a spike and that's a warning to anyone else who tries the same thing. And in the world of knowledge, you say that the earth revolves around the sun and not vice versa and you're put in jail or killed or ostracized. Mm -hmm. And that's how it typically worked. So liberalism made this wonderful deal. It said, on the one hand, folks, you got to be willing to lose sometime. It doesn't mean you have to think that you were wrong all along, but, but you just got to accept it if the system looks at your idea or looks at your platform and says, you know what, we don't want that. We don't think that's the right answer. So that's what individuals have to be willing to do for the system to work. But you get something in exchange for that which is the right to try again. So the genius of the, of the US constitution is no one gets killed when they lose an election. No one is exiled. They reorganize and try again. In the realm of knowledge, this is even more important because the fuel for scientific progress, all intellectual progress is error. People make mistakes, but those mistakes can be fuel for knowledge because they drive the checking process that finds the truth. That's what science is, a gigantic, international, global, error-seeking network. And that only works if people are willing to make mistakes, which means what happens to you if you make a mistake and you're proved wrong is you're a little embarrassed and you lose the argument, and then you try again. That's absolutely crucial. Cancel culture denies that by saying you're going to pay with your job, your reputation, your career, your friendships. Um, It's toxic to that kind of culture. Well, at the risk of uh, of opening another can of worms, what you're describing are really Enlightenment era values that are actually have been under under siege for some time, and you've written about this in, in academia as well. Um, by by many of the uh, new critical theories out there, whether it's radical feminism or critical theory that says that this whole idea of objective truth and everything is outmoded. Um, we need to look at things in terms of your racial or gender identity um, that or or power relationships. I mean, in, at the heart of critical theory, and I'm not talking about critical race theory exclusively here, 
is this critique that 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 in that in fact this idea of knowable objective scientific truth is is really not the be all and end all, and that's been undermined for a long time now, hasn't it? And, and it's under siege. Well, it has, and that goes back to at least the seventies. But um, you know what I'm what I'm about to say might surprise you, Charlie, which is I, I really don't have a problem with theorists who come along and, and want to challenge the basis of science or truth, because that's also part of this process of figuring out what's true by, by challenging all kinds of ideas. The key is to inject those challenges in an environment where everyone is subject to criticism and debate, and no one's in a position to shut down the argument. Exactly. And, and that's a world of difference. So there's a debate, which... You know, I'm kind of open-minded on this. You could argue me either way. But there's a debate about what's called critical race theory, and there's mm -hmm. even a debate about what there is, what that is. But there's one school of thought that says, this thing is inherently fascistic. It is just inherently illiberal. Wherever it comes to power, it will be like radical Islam or, or, or some other or certain kinds of fascism, which will just shut down argument and debate because that's what it's based on, that there's only one point of view. Yeah. And even people like Andrew Sullivan make that argument. Yeah. yeah. Andrew Sullivan, others make that case. Mm -hmm. And then there's another view of it, which says, no, wait a minute. There's some really good ideas in critical race theory, at least some important ideas that are worth debating. And those are separate from the coercive tactics that are being used by some of the proponents of critical race theory. So what we should be doing is debating and discussing the proposition of critical race theory. Like there is such a thing as whiteness, and this is a social status that needs to be remedied. But we need to discuss that in non-coercive ways so that no one feels like they're going to lose their job if they don't go along with whatever is the party line on race today. And that's a debate that's ongoing. And I'm not sure I know the answer to that, but, but I'll tell you one thing I do know, which is that in any community or society where you basically outlaw all but one point of view, whether you're doing that with law and imprisonment or whether you're doing that with social coercion and the destruction of livelihoods and reputation, that will be a community where learning comes to a halt and where bias and half-truth become prevalent. Well, to put it mildly, I agree with you completely, but I, I, I'm really struck. I don't know with you. I, I've been engaged in this uh, long-running guerrilla war with uh, some of the folks on the right, including Ted Cruz, on exactly this question, um, arguing that, okay, I, I have a lot of critiques that I would like to make of critical race theory, but this push now to pass laws banning theories, banning concepts, banning books from uh, from schools seems to me to be a uh, deeply wrong approach. And yet on the right, it, 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 they've gone in like five minutes from saying, you know, academic freedom, free speech, we are the movement of free speech, pushing back on cancel culture, have completely embraced the idea that if you don't favor legislation banning something, then you must be a proponent of it which means that for many of them, the, the liberal small L concept that you just described seems to have been completely forgotten. And, it, and the speed with which it's happened is really quite remarkable. Well, it always is. You know, liberalism, small L liberalism, here we're talking about a commitment to the kinds of democratic and enlightenment processes we're talking about. I mean, for the most part, most people have always been fair weather friends of that, right? right? They love free speech when it helps them, but not when it lets uh, another group that they don't like talk. Um, so, so that's nothing new, but, but you're right that the 
far right and the far left are, are each other's best friends. They need each other because they both wind up in the same place, which is trying to shut down these processes of, of debate um, and of, of openness that we all rely on. And you're also right that legislating what can be taught in school substantively and what is true and what is false is a very bad idea if you're telling biology teachers that they have to teach creationism. This was tried, as you know. Yes. Uh, and it's also a bad idea if you're telling civics teachers what they have to teach about the history of race in America. The, the only people who should be making that decision are the people in that big network out there, all of those historians and scientists and philosophers who are running the traps on all these ideas. And only at the very end of that, when something is seriously well-established by lots of experiment and trial and error and checking, does it belong in the textbooks? And I'm against shortcutting that, whether you do it by politically inserting the 1619 Project or by politically banning the 1619 Project. No, what you need, I think, is is the process that you describe of rethinking. You know, so for example, and I've admitted this on the podcast many times now, uh, the, that I had never known about the Tulsa race massacre, um, and I'm was embarrassed about it. But apparently, a lot of other people did not know about it as well. So when you learn about something like that, it should lead to a reevaluation. What do we know about American history? What do we not know about American history? Do we need to revise our understanding of of the American story of that narrative and begin to ask, okay, what other questions does this pose about this country's dealing with it? And, and if you try to shut that down in any way whatsoever, then I think it's profoundly illiberal, whether it comes from the right or from the left. Yeah, this is the, the positive aspect of critical race theory and the debates that we're having on race right now. Sometimes in science and history and other fields, you have to shake the tree really hard to get some of the fruit to fall out. And you overshoot. And you have theories that go way too far and get dialed back once other people can check them, if, if they're allowed to check them. But I think we've all felt a, a transformation in understanding better these, these episodes of American history. I just learned yesterday, I've known for a while about the Tulsa riots, but did you know there was an even bigger one in Arkansas? Yes, I did. I, I mean, well, I, I, no, no, I'm sorry. I did not know. I learned about it subsequently as, as you know, we begin to discover that, hey, there was a whole series of these massacres yeah, that yeah, were erased is, from, from our collective memory. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and if we're learning, if these are tools to help us learn, if we can prevent the overshoot in the long run, that's, that's a great and important thing. You know, Charlie, I was... I'm born in 1960, so I was taught civics in the 70s. And what was in my textbook, a, a well-intentioned textbook, but it was the so-called Dunning interpretation of Reconstruction, which said that basically after the Civil War, you had Andrew Johnson and he wanted to rebuild in a harmonious way, but radicals in the North sent down a bunch of carpetbaggers who extorted the yes. South and were corrupt mm -hmm. and stripped it clean. And then fortunately, that corruption was put an end to and things went back to normal. Yes. Well, excuse me. Yeah, no. <laughs> it's funny you should mention that because I I remember when I read um, Ron Chernow's biography of, uh, of Ulysses S. Grant, realizing how awful Andrew Johnson was, how terrible the racial violence was in the, in the way, completely different view of Reconstruction. And 
and and how that contrasted with the way that I had been um, had been taught about it. I, I I agree with you completely. There was a version that we were taught, and I wonder how much of the history that you and I were taught because we're roughly of the same era um, was really sort of the Cold War propaganda. And uh, I, I'm, I'm not trying to be all cowards in, but how much of it was, um, a, you know, the 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 need to fit everything into a narrative of, you know, of, of American greatness and goodness and, and constant progress that, you know, meant that we were going to be ignoring certain things or downplaying certain things and really distorting the reality that we live in? Well, I don't know. It's a good question, but I do know I'm very glad that it's being corrected and we should all just have enough humility, essential virtue in the constitution of knowledge to realize that today's corrections will also need correcting. Sure. So tell me, what what are the solutions here? This seems to be the hardest thing. I mean, we all know that the truth is under attack, that we have, you know, this manipulative disinformation, you know, the nihilism out there. I've been asked this question many times. So what do we do about it? How do we turn it around? And I'll tell you that, that I struggle with this because I'm not convinced that everybody, for the reasons that we described, you described earlier, really, really care as much about truth as we would like to believe they do. So what do you, what needs to happen? Well, it's always been the case that lots of people don't care about truth or seek their own separate truth. And, you know, I'm an atheist, so I'd argue that a lot of mainstream religions are basically, you know, kind of weird and false beliefs that a lot of people believe. So the the trick isn't to try to get everybody to believe the same thing or to behave like a scientist in their private lives. We don't want that. We couldn't do it if we wanted to. The trick is to make our systems more resilient to... Uh, to falsehoods, conspiracy theories, fire hoses, falsehoods, cancel campaigns, so that they have less direct effect on our politics, so that they don't hurt us as much. You know, we don't really care that much if a bunch of people think Elvis Presley is alive, as long as we don't put ourselves to work tracking him down and sending him a social security check. Um, so it's a question about public decision making. And, and there, there's a whole lot that can be done. But a problem I found in, in talking about my book is, you know, usually you want to say, well, three bullet points, you yeah. know, pass, Senate bill, whatever. And this isn't like this. We face these disruptions in the past and they require multi-institutional cross-society responses on many levels. So I'll, I'll just tick off some examples of the sorts of things that work, but I'm just mentioning them just to give a sense of there's all kinds of stuff that can be done and I hope will be done. So just for example, a better informed public that understands it's being manipulated is harder to manipulate. Still manipulable, but harder. And we're doing better at that. Mm -hmm. Media need to be a lot savvier about disinformation. That's also happened much better in 2020 than 2016, though much further to go. We need watchdog groups, um, academic centers that study and infiltrate propaganda networks, understand what they're doing, get ahead of it, notify social media companies. That started to happen. Social media, big problem. We all know that. Their business model is toxic to truth, or at least it was. So that's going to require a lot of changes. And some of those are underway. I'm very bullish. We're very interested in Facebook's oversight board, which is an attempt mm -hmm. to do what's worked in the past, which is begin setting up norms, standards, guardrails, that people can understand and work toward that will help clean things up. Um, you need civics education. That's, and, and you need to teach critical thinking and media mm -hmm. literacy, the things that help ordinary citizens become more resilient 
against disinformation, you need to counter-organize against the canceling attacks. Those only work. You know, it's a small minority of Americans, like 8%, that are really on the hard left that are doing all this canceling and driving all these, you know, very inflammatory debates about race. They, I mean, they lose when you put it up for a vote. They just lost in New York City, for heaven's sake. Yeah. But they're able to do that because the other side, the liberal side, hasn't been organized. You know, we've all been scratching our heads and saying, oh, what's going on? Woe is us? What's happening? Well, that's starting to change. We're starting to organize and push back. That makes a world of difference because college presidents behave differently if they get criticism for cracking down on free speech um, instead of just praise for that. Employers, you know, there's going to need to be some codes for employers to voluntarily adopt that say, you know what, we're not going to fire people for exercising their First Amendment rights. So it's lots of things in lots of different dimensions that are going to be needed. And the good news is we're starting on a lot of those. Um, the bad news is, as you said earlier, so important, Charlie, it's, it's not automatic. The constitution of knowledge, like the U.S. Constitution, is not automatically self-sustaining. We need to understand it. And we need to rally to it, and then we need to defend it. The book is The Constitution of Knowledge, Defensive Truth by Jonathan Rausch. It is, uh, it is an outstanding piece of work. And by the way, uh, also, uh, if, you're, if you're looking for, for, for books, uh, Kindly Inquisitors, I think, really does stand up awfully well uh, from 1993. And I wish we had time to talk about uh, your book, The Happiness Curve. Um, where you you argue that, in fact, life uh, does get happier after the age of 50, which I find more persuasive with every passing year, Jonathan. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Me too, Charlie. I just turned 61. No, no. You know what? The funny thing is that, that, that if I had seen that when I was 40, I would have thought, yeah, right. That's just rationalization. But uh, we ought to talk about that sometime because I, I, I do think that there's there's a lot to be said. And and so even at, 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 the, at the ripe old age, the spry age of, of 61, you still think life is getting better. Well, I, the important point here is not that life gets better for everyone. I'm not saying if you have a no. cancer diagnosis, that's right. a good thing. Mm -hmm. But it's, it gets easier. Other things being cool, it gets significantly easier to be happy as you age past 50 and turn that corner. And that only continues through advanced old age. And I'd love to come back and talk about that because the science of that and the implications of that are so interesting. And it's such good news. You know, we could use good news, and and I, and I and I and I think and I think you're right, and I find it completely surprising. I really, I really do. Jonathan Roush, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Appreciate it very much. Thank you, and thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again. <laughs> 